There is one monk in the time of the Buddha who was renowned for having gotten enlightened the quickest of anybody. That was his rather wonderful accomplishment. The Buddha uttered one verse and this person became fully enlightened. The verse that the Buddha uttered contains just a few lines and in it the whole teaching is expressed, the whole practice is expressed, and the fruit of the practice is expressed. So it was a very pregnant utterance. Listen carefully. (laughs) You'll miss it because it's so simple. See if you can make your minds simple, innocent. In the scene, there is just what is seen. In the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. In the scene, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. It's very simple. There is just what there is. What else could there be? There is just what there is in each moment. But how come we listen to that? For the most part, we don't become fully enlightened. (laughs) And it doesn't transform our lives so much. And what's the difference? Because we are lost almost totally in our thoughts. We don't take thoughts just as thoughts. 
but rather we get lost in our thoughts and create whole worlds in which we live. We live in the world of our thoughts. We don't live in the world of reality. Because we get lost in our thoughts. We get lost in our stories. Our whole life, our whole life is a story which we're thinking. How is it possible to come out of the story? How is it possible not to get lost in our thoughts? It's rather the predicament of this one Zen monk who painted on the side of his cave a very realistic picture of a tiger. And he painted it and painted it, and he did it so realistically that when it was finished, he became frightened. That's what happens to us. We paint these pictures, these stories in our minds, and then we get enmeshed in reaction and identification in that which we've created. How to come out of the story? How to come out of our own story? The Buddha gave an extremely clear and precise teaching in terms of what qualities of mind had to be cultivated in order to drop from the story into reality. Those factors of mind which had to be cultivated so that we don't continually get lost in our stories again, lost in our thoughts. And he called these mental qualities or mental factors the factors of enlightenment. And what we're doing here is cultivating and developing and deepening each one of those factors of enlightenment. The first one. First one is mindfulness. Just reflect for a moment. Most of you have been here now for a couple of weeks. Reflect for a moment in your mind about what mindfulness means. Do you know what mindfulness means? Mindfulness, that quality of close attention to actual experience. 
to seeing, to hearing, to smelling, to tasting, to touching, sensations, to thoughts, to feelings, to emotions. Close attention to actual experience. The Buddha gave a very famous discourse in which he outlined a whole development of mindfulness. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And it's a brilliant description of the development of mindfulness and awareness in the entirety of our lives and experience. The first foundation of mindfulness, the first field of awareness, is awareness of the body. What does that mean, awareness of the body? When we're not paying close attention, we can think that awareness of the body means Awareness of Joseph walking, awareness of my head, of my back, of my legs, awareness of eating, awareness of going to the bathroom. That's not mindfulness. That's still lost in thought. Because when we pay close attention, to the actual experience of the moment, we see that we experience the body in terms of different sensations that we feel, different elements. Feel heat and cold, light and heaviness, pressure, tingling, itching, throbbing, stabbing, burning, pulling, tingling. A whole range of sensations, that's what we experience. That's mindfulness of the body. Anything more descriptive than that is simply thinking about what we're doing. So pay attention, pay careful, close attention to the body as you go through the day and see actually what you're experiencing. So when you're walking, do you experience foot and leg and body and floor Or, when you're paying close attention, do you experience changing sensations? You might get a sense of how important the closeness is of the attention, because if we're observing our experience from a distance, if I'm observing it from out here, then it looks like Joseph walking. And in that space, in that distance, there's a lot of possibility of all kinds of concepts to come in. There's a certain picture, a certain appearance, we give that appearance a name. Joseph is taking a walk. That's lost in thought about the experience. When the attention is close, 
then the experience of the body is one of constantly changing sensations and vibrations. In that close attention, there's no foot, there's no leg, there's no body, there's no Joseph. Simply pressure and hardness and softness and heat and warmth. We come to the reality of the moment. Awareness of the body, awareness of the physical elements, that's the first field, the first application of mindfulness. The second application of mindfulness has to do with the awareness of something that plays an absolutely critical role in the nature of our conditioning. It's a pivotal experience that conditions our minds and how we live in the world. So it's really at the crux of the practice. And that is mindfulness of feelings. And feeling, in this sense, has a very specific meaning. It means the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality in every moment's experience. We see something, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We hear something, sense something, think something, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. What makes this feeling so critical in our conditioning? It's pleasant feeling which conditions grasping. Why do we grasp at anything? Because it's pleasant. Why do we condemn anything? Because it's unpleasant. Why do we become forgetful? Because the feeling is too ephemeral, neutral feeling. Just imagine for a moment how your life would be if it were not conditioned to grasp at what's pleasant, to push away what's unpleasant, or to forget what's neutral. it would be a very different life. And so because these feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness play such a critical conditioning role in our unfolding, it becomes important to become mindful of them. Because when there's awareness of pleasantness, It's not to push the pleasantness away. When there's awareness of pleasantness, there's the simple experience of it for what it is. A changing, pleasant experience. And there's no grasping. If we're mindful, if we're attentive to the unpleasantness of an experience, And there's no pushing it away, there's no resistance, there's no aversion.
this the simple experience of unpleasant unpleasant experience in that moment no problem if we're mindful of those experiences that are neutral neutral feeling we don't space out we don't become forgetful so there's an opposite way to work with this also since our minds are so conditioned, since we're so much in the habit of grasping what's pleasant, pushing away what's unpleasant, we can also go backwards and see when we're reactive, when we find ourselves grasping or clinging, or when we find ourselves filled with aversion or resistance, then to work back and to see what's the feeling that's behind that particular reaction as we become aware of the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the conditioned reaction falls away. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings. The third application of awareness is mindfulness of the mind. That is, aware of the angry mind, the loving mind, the still mind, (coughs) the agitated mind, the generous mind, the lusting mind, the mind with all the different mental factors which condition it. When we're not aware of the mind in these mind states, what happens? We identify with them, and we get lost in the story about them. Now, when there's anger in the mind, how many of us can simply be with the energy of anger, really experiencing fully and rawly and completely and totally angry energy without any story at all of this person doing that and this is what I feel and I have to say this. Not getting lost in the words about it, but opening to the experience of it. What we see is that the words and the story feeds it. That's what lock these mind states in. It locks the greed in, it locks the anger in. And as soon as we can drop to the level of bare experience of the energy of those mind states, then it's no problem. It's just like, maybe like a passing thunderstorm. There's no holding to it, there's no locking it in. There's mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of mind and mind states. The fourth application of awareness is mindfulness of the Dhamma. And what this means is that we're aware of certain qualities of mind as they function in the mind. For example, we're aware of desire and anger and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt 
We're aware of them in themselves, which is the third application of mindfulness, and also as they function. That is, we're aware of them as hindrances. We become aware that they hinder concentration. We become aware of the Four Noble Truths. That is the suffering in existence and what causes it, the attachment, and the end of it, and the way to the end of it. We become aware of the factors of enlightenment and how they function. That's this fourth application of awareness. See, the mindfulness is a tremendously potent force. And everything we've been talking about so far is the application of mindfulness, the application of close attention. Close attention to bodily sensations, close attention to feelings, close attention to mind and mind states, close attention to the Dhamma, truth. What you'll see, as I mentioned, the other factors of enlightenment, mindfulness is listed first because it has the power to bring all the others. You'll see, as we go through the list, that out of mindfulness come all the other necessary factors of awakening. So it's it's a tremendously potent quality of mind, that close attention. The second factor of enlightenment is called investigation of the Dhamma. That is, when we bring our attention close to the experience, then what do we do? We investigate it. It's a probing quality, penetrating quality. We investigate two things about experience. We investigate what's called the specific nature of each experience. That is, investigating the nature of hardness. You really feel what's specific to hardness as opposed to softness. What's specific to heat as opposed to cold. What's specific to anger. What's specific to love. So each experience as it presents itself in the mind and body, through the power of close attention and mindfulness, we investigate the nature of that experience. And sometimes, maybe as a help developing this investigative factor, from time to time you might ask yourself the question as you're sitting, paying close attention, What is the nature of this? What is this, this moment? So we experience the specificity (laughs) of each moment. That's one kind of investigation, the specific characteristics. And we also investigate the general characteristics. That is, what every moment of experience has in common with every other moment. Just think what an extraordinary discovery it is 
to see what every moment in our lives has in common with every other moment. What do we find? We find that one of the general characteristics of all experience, without exception, is that it's constantly changing, momentary. There's a momentariness to experience. It's in, it's in constant flux. There's nothing static. There's nothing steady. There's nothing unchanging. There's nothing that's permanent. Again, this is not something to remember, and it's not something to believe. Rather, it's something to investigate. Through the power of mindfulness and close attention, investigate your experience. The specific nature of it, and also the general characteristics. Can you find anything that's unchanging? How quickly are you perceiving the change? The fact that everything is changing, changing has enormous implications for how we live our lives. Because when we truly understand it, not just think it and not believe it, but when we really know it in ourselves, there's not as much motivation for the mind to cling or grasp. What can we hold on to? What are we trying to hold on to? That moment's experience. We see the futility of it and the suffering of it, the suffering of trying to hold on to that which is so transient. So that's one of, the thing, one of the general characteristics which we can investigate and explore and look at and see, and make that understanding and wisdom our own. Another general characteristic that we can investigate and explore is the unsatisfactoriness of experience. And that's a very hard one for people in a Western culture to even hear. To think that what's common to all our experience, to every moment of our experience, is that it's basically unsatisfactory. It's sure not the message of the media. And it's sure not the message of our minds, of our stories. What does it mean? It's a pretty radical statement. That what every moment has in common is that it's unsatisfactory. That should make us stop and think, you know. It's worth considering, it's worth investigating, because the Buddha was right about a lot, you know, and he was pretty careful with his words. 
And it's not that you should believe it, and not that you should build a whole thing about it, but it might be worth looking into. What does it mean that each moment is unsatisfactory? Because already I can imagine the mind building whole stories about that, getting lost in the story. Just imagine that you're sitting on a train You're sitting facing forward. As you sit, you're looking out at the scenery. And if you can remember what it's like. And you're sort of looking out and anticipating what's coming and just getting into what you see and what's coming up, looking forward to. Imagine yourself facing backwards on the train. You're facing the back of the train, and things are just, you know, going by really quickly. So your experiences of things, of being at just the last moment of your experience, and each last moment is instantaneously falling away. It's like... And, and there's no looking forward because you can't see forward. And you can only see backwards. There's one tribe in Africa who has a very interesting cultural <laughs> twist. They imagine the past is in front of them and the future behind. Because they can see the past and they can't see the future. It's an interesting change of perspective. We think we're walking into our futures. Actually, we're looking into our past, backing into our future. Aren't we? Can we see the moment before it comes? When you're sitting in your experience, Take a look at how it's happening. And you'll see that we become aware of each last moment. And each last moment is continually falling away. It lasts microsecond. I don't know the word for... It's in that sense that each moment's experience is unsatisfactory. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Right? It may be a perfectly pleasant moment. But it's not very satisfactory in the sense that it's gone before you can do anything with it. Where is the satisfaction in that? Where is the completion? Where is the fulfillment? Where is the wholeness? It's not to be found in those passing moments because they're dissolving instantaneously. But again, mostly we don't see that because we're lost in our story about ourselves. And the story is quite permanent. You know, our little dramas and relationships and interactions and what we do with our lives. It's through the power of close attention 
the power of mindfulness. And this factor of investigation, that not only can we see what's happening, that is the specific characteristic of each moment, we can also become aware of the general characteristics. That is, that it's constantly changing, and because of that, inherently unsatisfactory. You might think of it as being incapable of giving satisfaction because it lasts only a moment. There's one more general characteristic that we learn about, we understand, develop wisdom about through investigation. And that is the selflessness of this whole process. For this we have to change the image a little bit. The image of sitting backwards in the train, looking out the window, there's still the sense of somebody there looking out the window, and everything is changing. Now, in one radical moment, take the passenger away. And there's just changing experience. What we are is the flow of changing experience. It's not happening to someone. It doesn't refer back to someone. What we are is the flow of momentary experience. But it's happening so fast that it gives the illusion of permanence, of solidity, of form. It's like when you, in a whirl, a branch that's, that's burning, you create a circle of fire in the air. You do it fast enough, it looks as if there's a circle of fire. But that's only an illusion created by the rapidity of the movement. There's no body, there's no Joseph, there's no self. All of that is an appearance, an illusion, because the changes are going so fast that we see it as a picture. And we get lost in the words about it. It goes back to what Kala Rinpoche says. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. That reality of momentary changing experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. The factor of enlightenment of investigation is what we do when there is close attention to the moment. We begin to investigate the nature of that moment. Both specifically what is hardness? What is softness? What is a thought? Not getting lost in the meaning of the thought, but investigating the nature of thought. What are they? They're words in the mind. It's like there's this little typewriter clacking out the words. 
and a little paintbrush painting the pictures. And we jump right into the content of it. We write our own stories. And we've forgotten that they're simply words and they're simply images, and that each one of those experiences shares the general characteristics with every other experience that is totally momentary, unsatisfactory, and selfless. The words don't refer back to a self. Plant that seed for a moment. That thoughts don't refer back to anyone. Words in the mind. One Tibetan text, the text of Mahamudra, it likens the mind to an empty sky, to thoughts like clouds floating through the sky without roots, without home. Thoughts have no roots, no home. They're simply a phenomenon like seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing in the body. They're just phenomenon arising and passing. And in a moment of thinking, what we become in that moment is a word. Imagine being a word. What we are is a momentary succession of being a hearing, being a smelling, being a tasting, being a thinking. That's investigation of the Dharma, investigation of the truth. Really beginning to understand on this very subtle level what our experience actually is rather than what we think about it, or the story, or the appearance. This investigation leads to the third factor of enlightenment, and that's the factor of rapture. And rapture has also a very specific meaning in this context. It means the quality of interest, profound interest. That quality of the mind that is so interested in what's happening. And how does that interest come about? It comes about through close attention and investigation. You begin to develop this sense of real wonder at our ability to examine our experience in this subtle and careful way. Just imagine how the first scientists must have felt when they looked through a microscope. And a whole new world opened up. A world that they had not imagined existed. And then they looked through this microscope and fantastic. They were probably pretty interested 
and what they were seeing and what was going on, it's exactly the same thing. As the microscopes of the mind get focused through close attention, through investigation, there's this incredible interest in what we're doing in the practice. And I know often that people hear that in the beginning, and they're struggling with pains and hindrances and restlessness, and it seems like the most boring activity in the world. I'm simply offering this, I guess by way of encouragement, to tell you that if you stay with it in a careful way, with close attention, with investigation, this factor, this mind quality of interest begins to get extremely strong. And when it is, you have very little problem with boredom, with restlessness. Because the mind is really interested in what's going on. So it develops, it develops in the practice. Mindfulness, investigation, rapture. The fourth factor of enlightenment, actually in the classical order I skipped one. The fourth one in how I've been talking about it is energy. Actually energy comes third. What's energy? What is that factor? It's that quality of mind, of wakefulness, of alertness. And you know, you know the difference when you have energy and when you're sleepy, when you're drowsy, when you feel dull. When the energy is there, when the wakefulness is there, everything becomes real clear. When the dullness is there, when the heaviness is there, it becomes more difficult. Again, what's interesting is that mindfulness and investigation create the energy. As this close attention, as we get through the solidity of things, Actually, what's happening is we're coming to the fundamental energy level that we are. So we begin to tap in to this energy system. Now, what is this mind-body process? It's really an energy system. But we've solidified the appearance so much that we've lost access to the energy that we are, through the power of mindfulness, of close attention, of investigation, we reconnect. And that's why you'll see that as the practice goes on and deepens, commonly, for many people, there's much less need for sleep. You feel much less sleepy during the day because you've reconnected. Or Perhaps another way of saying it is you've dropped back into the, the energy system. There's mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture. 
The fifth factor of enlightenment is calm. Just think for a moment of calm. Sort of like when you take a deep breath, you just let go. Calm mind. Think of a calm sea. Not a lot of waves, not a lot of agitation. Stillness. You can see how in that stillness and in that calm, there's a possibility for real clarity. So when a lake is very calm, you can see to the bottom. When the lake is very agitated, it's difficult to see to the depths. So sometimes you'll be sitting and you'll just get into a very calm space. Nothing much is happening, you're just with the breath, the mind gets very calm, the body calm. Fine, enjoy it. It's the cultivation of this factor of enlightenment. And it's part of creating the whole balance, the whole picture. <coughs> it's mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration. And that is the ability of the mind in each moment to focus, to be real steady in that moment. There's a power. Concentration is the power of mind. How do you feel? Suppose you go on a, a physical training program. And you start out with your training in the first weeks, so you know, you're really struggling with your body. But as you practice, as you train, you feel the body getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And the accompanying feeling of well-being, just as you feel that strength in your body, that's the feeling tone of concentration. That quality of strength unwaveringness, power. You know, all the powers that you hear about that come from the mind come through the vehicle of this concentration. We don't have to develop it to the point of any superpowers. We just need enough to investigate clearly. And so it's not out of the reach of people. And if we were practicing the concentration in order to develop the ability to do all these fantastic psychic yogic tricks, that's a lot. To develop just enough to see in each moment what's happening, it's not so difficult. As we practice the concentration, which doesn't mean necessarily focusing just on one object or locking into one object. It means that steadiness and that strength in each moment on what's happening. Whether it's a physical sensation, whether it's a feeling, whether it's a mind state, steady. And you'll see in the practice the development of this sense of strength and well-being and power. And it's in a good sense. It's just a, it's a sense of being strong. 
strong mind. The last act of enlightenment is that of equanimity. And this is, has a fantastic quality to it. You know what equanimity means? Equanimity is that balance of mind, it's openness of mind. It's impartiality of mind. Imagine going through one's life experience with real, true, deep equanimity. It means that we're totally open to each experience as it comes. And we're not grabbing and we're not pushing away. We're just there for each moment. To move close attention to the deconditioning of the action of our mind to grasp what's pleasant, to push away what's unpleasant. Through the development of investigation and seeing the constantly changing nature, what happens is the mind automatically starts developing equanimity. It stops reacting, it stops moving, it stops holding on. It's just there. Like space. There's one story which I love very much because it embodies the essence of equanimity. It's the story of the old Korean Zen master in the time of the great civil war, a lot of violence. There was this one general who was particularly violent, committing a lot of atrocities. And as he marched through the countryside, everyone fled. And there was one city and everyone fled, except for the Zen master. All the monks fled, everyone. The city was deserted. And this very violent person filled with aggression, marched up to the temple to the Zen master, and he was relinquishing his sword, shouting at the Zen master, don't you know that you're looking at one who can run you through without batting an eye? And then looked at him and said, You, sir, are looking at one who can be run through without battering the mother. And so the general bowed and left. Tremendous power comes from that place of equanimity. So do you see what we're doing here? Well, actually what's happening, not the story of what's happening, 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.